1 Corinthians chapter 9 is where we'll be today. You know, there are some words that children learn rather easily from a young age. There are certain words that seem to just roll off a little kid's tongue as he's learning to speak. Like, for instance, the word no. Just, it's like they get that. They, as soon as they can talk, no, no. Or uh, one of the words our kids learned rather quickly when they were first learning how to talk was the word more. When they were eating, and they would say, mo, mo, mo. And you're like, oh, you just keep shoveling food into them. <laughs> then they get a little bit older, and there's another phrase that they learn rather quickly. And, uh, it, it, and it's usually a little bit later on, but it's the phrase, you're not the boss of me. Seems especially like younger siblings learn that phrase as they, you know, they discover that they don't have to obey their older siblings the way they obey their parents. And so they love to say to each other, you're not the boss of me. And they say it on the playground, you're not the boss of me. And I have to confess, as I've grown older, I've never really lost that phrase. I, I really still like that phrase. You're not the boss of me. For whatever reason, it, you know, it bothers me when people tell me what to do who don't have the right to tell me what to do. Uh, just this morning, I kid you not, I was out walking my dog on my Sunday morning, 6 a.m., think through the sermon one more time, walk of the dog around the neighborhood, and I'm heading back home, and, and the, this car pulls up to me, and this lady has her window down, and she's like, excuse me, you know, she says, you know, the salt from the, the salted and the, the snow, it, it stings the dog's, dog's paws, and you need to wash the salt off, because I work with dogs, and it's really bad, and I was like, oh, okay, okay, I'll take the dog home and wash its feet, which I did. And, uh, uh, but, and then she's like, you know, it's really too cold to be out walking that dog. And, and, and so I just, I go, no, it isn't. <laughs> and she's like, oh, and she drove off. I was like, great pastoral moment. But, you know, I'm like, it's an animal covered with fur. Like, it's a dog. Come on. I don't like when people tell me what to do. You know, she's not the boss of me. Um, there's a healthy sense in which we need to know that other people aren't the boss of us. There's a, there's a healthy sense of knowing our rights and, and holding on to our rights. Uh, I mean, our country is founded on the principle of certain inalienable rights that have been given to us by God. We have a document in our founding constitution called the Bill of Rights, where in essence our, our founding fathers sat down and said, okay, as we're forming this government, these are the areas where individuals can say to the government, you're not the boss of me. And, and so we appreciate that as, as Americans, and we're thankful for those rights that are enshrined for us in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights. But as Christians, as Christians, we have come to experience something more transformative than rights, as much as we love our rights. We've come to experience something even bigger. We've come to experience grace. We've, we've heard a message more compelling than the Bill of Rights, as awesome as that is, and as much as I appreciate it. We've come to hear the message of the gospel. We not only believe that God has endowed us with certain inalienable rights, but we've actually heard that our creator gave up his rights to become a human being to die on the cross for us so that we could be saved. We, we worship a God who surrendered rights in order to save us. 
And so as Christians, when we think about rights, we can't just think about rights in isolation. We, we have to think about our rights through the whole lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel transforms the way we look at everything and think about everything in our lives, even our rights. That's part of what was going on here in 1 Corinthians as we look at this today. Uh, Paul is, again, addressing a very troubled church and a very conflicted church, and one of the things that was causing turmoil in that church was the issue of rights. There were certain Christians asserting their rights, and it was troubling and making faith difficult for others. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you you kind of got exposed to this. Godwin started preaching on this, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, If you weren't here last Sunday, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. It was excellent, excellent teaching and really helpful for me. But in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is addressing an issue that that was plaguing the church back then. Uh, And I'm sure you'll totally be able to relate to this. It was the, the issue of food sacrificed to idols. I know, that's an issue you wrestled with this morning, I'm sure. Food sacrificed to idols, like what? Why was that a big deal? Well, try to leave the 21st century and go back to the 1st century in the Roman Empire. You're a Christian. You're living in Corinth. You want to eat meat. So you go to the grocery store, or the equivalent of that, to the marketplace, and what you have to know is that most of the meat sold in the marketplace had previously been sacrificed to idols. And so there's an ethical question. You're a Christian now living in a pagan city. Is it wrong for Christians to eat meat sacrificed to idols? It's kind of an interesting question. It's not one we're plagued with, but it's, it's one of those kind of like, wow, should you eat it? Should you not? And there was a division in the church of Corinth. There are some Corinthians who are like, guys, I don't know if we should be eating that. It's been sacrificed to idols, and aren't we supposed to, to have a witness to the community? I mean, are we compromising our faith by eating this food that's been sacrificed to idols I don't, I don't know if we should do it. And then there was another group in the church that was like, ah, come on, just eat it. What's the big deal? God made food. Food is good. Eat what you want. As long as you're thankful, who cares? And besides, those idols aren't even real. Haven't we learned that there's only one true God and, and Zeus isn't a God and Poseidon's not a God? There's just one creator God and his son, Jesus Christ. Who cares? Come on, come on. You, you can eat whatever you want. And don't you tell me not to eat it. I have a right to eat whatever I want. So you had the kind of rights crowd in the church, and then you had those who were like, I don't know. And and, and so Paul in chapter 8, just to kind of review last week's text, because this helps to set up this week's text, in chapter 8, Paul was essentially saying, yeah, you know what, rights crowd, you're right. That, That food is fine to eat. You're not sinning if you eat food offered to idols. Idols aren't real. We all know that. But, you know, here's where you're wrong, rights crowd. You're wrong because you're plowing ahead, exercising your rights, but it's tripping up other Christians in the church. And so they're being tempted to eat food sacrificed to idols, even though their conscience has a trouble with it. And so you're actually tempting them to do something that's going to make them feel like they're sinning. So, so don't do that. The summary is right there in verse 13 of chapter 8. Look at chapter 8, verse 13, just to get us into the text here. Here's the conclusion Paul comes to. He says, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. I have my rights, but there's something more important than my rights. You. I care about you more than I care about my rights personally, as an individual. And if giving up my rights will help strengthen your faith and build you up in Christ, well, fine. You know, I'm going vegetarian when I'm around you because I want you to be built up in your faith. 
Chapter 9 then, Paul continues this idea that Christians who've been affected by the gospel should be willing to give up their rights if it will help the salvation or the spiritual growth of other people. That's what chapter 9 is about. Except instead of talking about food sacrifice to idols, Paul kind of pivots away from that topic. And instead he says, you know what, let's shift gears here a little bit. Let me just tell you about me. Paul's going to tell about himself and how he personally has given up his rights in order to build up other people. So, so he's still on the theme, it's just that he's not talking about food sacrifice idols now. He's just talking about his own autobiography and how that is an example to them of how they should be, able, be willing to give up rights to bless others. And in Paul's case, the right that Paul gave up is this, and this is, what cha- this is where chapter 9 takes us. Paul gave up the right to expect the Corinthians to pay him for being their leader and their preacher. Paul gave up the right to expect that the Corinthians should support him financially while he's ministering to them. And he did it for their good. And so, so do you see the argument Paul's kind of make? He's like, yeah, yeah, you guys, you know, you rights crowd in the church, you're like, we can eat whatever we want. No one can tell us what not to eat. And Paul says, hey, guess what? You know what I can eat? I can eat your food. Because <laughs> you should be supporting me. But I didn't use my right. And so don't you use your rights if it's going to hinder the spiritual development and growth of others. And so look what Paul says. Look with me at chapter 9, verses 1 to 14. I'm going to read these 14 verses, and I just want you to listen to what Paul does in these first 14 verses, is he's going to give us a whole bunch of arguments establishing that, yes, in fact, he has the right to expect financial support from the Corinthians. That's a right he has. So the first 14 verses, he's going to build up arguments to prove that, before he goes to the fact that he didn't use the right. So let me just read the first 14, first 14 verses. Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who want to sit in judgment of me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brother and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living, who serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes, who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this is written for us. Because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with everything, anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in, the, in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So do you, did you hear that in those first 14 verses? Paul is just... Uh, 
he's kind of letting loose an avalanche of arguments, one argument after another, for why he has the right to expect financial support from the Corinthians. So he's got a kind of, he's setting it up. I have this right. Let me prove to you I have this right. And then in a minute he's going to say how he hasn't used the right. But first, look at the arguments. And, and there's really five of them that I could count. Uh, you might be able to slice them up differently. But let me just rattle them off really quickly. Argument number one, he has a right to financial support because he's an apostle. In the first six verses, Paul says, look, I'm an apostle. The apostles were the special people who had seen the Lord Jesus and who were set apart by Jesus to establish the church. There are no apostles today. The, the, the apostles are, are, are people who had seen the Lord and whom the Lord had used to establish and begin the church. And now the church has begun. And we have the apostles' writings in the New Testament. Um, but Paul says, look, I'm an apostle. I could expect you to provide for me as an apostle. Reason number two, I had a right to you supporting me financially, is, is analogies. Look at verse 7. The analogy of the soldier. The soldier doesn't serve at his own expense. I'm a soldier of the Lord. I could have expected you to provide for me. The vineyard planter expects to eat of the grapes. Hey, guys, I planted you as a church. The shepherd drinks the milk from the flock. Hey, I've shepherded you. And so not only am I an apostle, but even other jobs teach you that, that I should be supported from the work that I'm doing. Third argument, he quotes an Old Testament passage, verse 8, verse 9. The, the, the Old Testament says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. It's kind of a proverb. The proverb doesn't make a lot of sense to us because we don't have oxen. I mean, some, you know, anyone here have oxen? Does anyone here tread grain? I mean, we don't do that these days. But you can imagine in the old days, an ox stepping on the grain to crush the, the, the kernels of grain and to break the husks around them to make it easier to winnow. Or, or maybe you know, the ox pulling a big um, uh, grindstone that's grinding the grain like that. And if that ox is doing that work all day, like don't put a muzzle on the ox. If he wants to stick his head down and chomp on some of the grain, let him do it because he's doing the work, right? So three, there's three arguments. Number one, I'm an apostle. Number two, other jobs are paid from the labor. Number three, don't muzzle the ox. Argument number four is in verses 10 through 12. If we've done a spiritual work among you, is it too much to ask that we have a material payout? If we've been laboring for your salvation, is it too much to ask that you help us financially just to support that amazing spiritual work that's going on? And then the fifth argument is down in verses 13 and 14. It's an argument based upon the Old Testament priesthood. You know, in the Old Testament, if you were a priest working in the temple, how did you make your living? You can't go out and farm. You can't go out and be a shepherd. How do you provide for yourself if you're a priest? Well, as the offerings are brought into the temple in the Old Testament, the priests live off those offerings in part and, and the tithes that are brought in. And so Paul makes an analogy in verse 12. He says, um, sorry, rather verse 14, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And in fact, this has been the practice of the church down through the centuries. You know, think about this. What's the business model of the church? What should the church's business model be? We all have business models in our work. What's the church's business model? Well, it's, it's people freely giving offerings to support the work of the ministry. That's the business model of the church. Our, our business model isn't to create a widget that we sell and market. It's people saying, yeah, I want to support the work of the ministry, and people contribute and give to the work of the ministry. We still do that today. 
We have missionaries. Our church supports missionaries. People going out to other countries to spread the gospel. How do they go do that? Well, we as a church, you know, we have a missions budget and we, we pool money together and we support some of those missionaries. And some of those missionaries go out and they preach the gospel and by God's grace, some people come to faith in Jesus and they grow and eventually you're able to start a church there and then that church starts becoming self-sufficient and that church says, you know, we need to set apart someone to help us as a church. And so maybe they set apart a pastor and pay his salary or part of his salary. Or maybe that church then supports missionaries. And so that's how the work of the gospel has gone on for 2,000 years. This organic, informal network of Christians contributing to the work of the gospel. Uh, I, I had a chance to do this last month. I, uh, I got a phone call from a pastor friend of mine who uh, had moved to New England in the last several years. He started a church and uh, he, not quite self-sufficient yet. And then he just got news. It was kind of a surprise. There was sort of a snafu. But his funding agency was, was ramping down his funds and it was going to run out in December. And he didn't know that. It was sort of a surprise. And he was really bummed because he, uh, not only does he like ministering here, but he has uh, like six interns coming into his church that he wants to train to go out and plant other churches. And so he was like, ah. So he called up a bunch of his friends, and I was one of them. And he said, can you fund me like $50 a month for 12 months to make up the shortfall of this, this thing that happened? And I was like, sure. Yeah, I'll do that. You know? and, and so I tell that story not to boast because, I mean, you know, nothing to boast about $50 a month. But, but to say, that's how it works, is that as Christians care about the gospel, we contribute to the work of the ministry, whether that's in our own churches, with our own pastors, or, or supporting missionaries around the world. This is how the gospel has been financed down through the centuries. And, and part of what it means to be a Christian is, is that we, we get in on that. If you've been affected by the gospel, you contribute to the gospel and the spread of the gospel. And, and so that's why, why churches, hopefully, are collecting offerings and things, is to advance the gospel. And, to ra- and as God raises up workers to support them and fund their efforts in all kinds of different ways. So do you get the point, Paul's point? Hey, Corinthians, for all these reasons, blah, 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 I could have expected that you would pay for me. I could have expected, I could have eaten your food. All you guys who are like, I can eat what I want. Well, guess what? I can eat your food. But I didn't. That's the twist here. Paul says, I didn't use the right to financial support. Verse 12. But we did not use this right. Verse 15. I have not used any of these rights. I'm not writing this in hope that you will do such things for me. This isn't a support letter. But I just want you to know, I could have, but I didn't. So do you see that the implicit point Paul's trying to make Hey, all you Corinthian Christians who are so insistent on your rights, guess what? I had a right that I could have made a claim upon you, but I didn't make the claim. So why didn't, uh, uh, why didn't Paul use his rights? Why instead did Paul support himself? You know, how did Paul finance himself when he was in Corinth? Well, he worked. Anyone know what he did for a living? Tents. He made tents. In fact, we use that phrase today, tent-making missionaries. If, if some, someone wants to go to another country and kind of support themselves with a business there to be a, to be a missionary in another country, maybe you go to another country and you're like, yeah, I want to be a missionary here. And they're like, eh, visa denied. Sorry, we don't take missionaries. Sometimes to get into that country, you have to go in and say, well, I'm not a missionary. I'm a, I'm a banker or I'm a plumber or I'm a teacher or I'm a PhD or something. 
then they're like, oh, yeah, come on in. And then you're kind of surreptitiously trying to preach the gospel in places that are closed. And, and so sometimes Christians have to do that, and they become tent-making missionaries. And, and that's how it works in some of those cases. And so this is what Paul did. He was a tent maker, and that's how he supported himself. And other churches were contributing to Paul's work. But in terms of the Corinthians, he didn't take any money from them. Now, why? Why did Paul forego that right? For the sake of the gospel. Look at verse 12. We did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the work of of the gospel. So in Paul's mind, asking the Corinthians to support him might have been a stumbling block for the gospel. Why is that? How, how does that follow? Why, why would asking the Corinthians for support been a stumbling block to the gospel? Well, Paul, Paul doesn't go into detail, but probably part of the reason is because of the way giving gifts worked in Greco-Roman society. So, so let me just do kind of a little history lesson here and you know, leave the 21st century, go back to ancient Rome, and in ancient Rome, if you were a person who gave financial aid to another person, everybody knew that that financial gift came with strings attached. That was the game. Everybody knew it. Everybody understood it. So, so if I'm giving a gift to you, it's not just me being a friend, but now I'm your patron and you're my client. And if I want to call in a favor someday or if I need your support, you now owe it to me because I've given you a gift. And so one of the ways you, you did social climbing in a Greco-Roman culture was you were generous. We think, oh, look at all those nice, generous people. No, 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 no. They're gaining power. They're, they're, they're putting out lots of strings so they can pull on those strings. It's the way they played their Game of Thrones. The, the people who were higher up gave out lots of gifts so that everybody owed them something. So now here's Paul, and he's the apostle who's leaving the Jewish culture and going into the Gentile culture and he's thinking, like, how am I going to reach these Gentiles? Well, I'll tell you one thing I want to avoid. I want to avoid the Game of Thrones gift-giving game. And so he comes in and preaches free of charge uh, because he knows, most likely, that's going to be a hindrance to the gospel. But there's another reason Paul preached free of charge. There's another reason he didn't exercise that gift. And that is because he wanted, uh, this is so great, classic Paul, he wanted to boast. Look at verse 16. I'll go back to verse 15. I have not used any of these rights. I'm not writing this in hope that you will do such things for me. I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Now, what's the boast? Is the boast that he's a gospel preacher? Nope, that's not it. When I preach the gospel, verse 16, I can't boast, for I'm compelled to preach the gospel. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Being a, an apostle and a gospel preacher isn't my boast because I don't really have a choice. God has called me to it. But who's, what's his boast? Verse 17. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If involuntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge. And so not make use of my rights in preaching it. What is Paul's boast? That I didn't use my rights. I offered it free of charge. Ha ha, he's so proud of that. Now, I think what's going on here in part is I think Paul is tweaking the Corinthians because they were so arrogant, so boastful, so all about social status and social climbing. And here's Paul coming to these arrogant, boastful Corinthians. He's like, you know what? Here's my boast. My boast is I'm a servant. 
Your boast is all these worldly things. Here's my boast. It's that I became a slave to you and served you free of charge. My boast is that I made myself nothing to serve you. So it's not just that Paul preached the gospel. He preached the gospel in a gospel-y kind of way. He not only told them of the free gift of salvation in Jesus, but he preached in a way that it was a free gift because of the culture and the situation in which he was. Paul didn't use his rights so that others might hear the gospel more clearly. Isn't that an amazing mindset? It's a, it's a whole way of looking at things to say, you know, I have my rights, but there's other people who need to be built up in their faith, and so I'm going to forego my rights or my preferences or, or, or my way of doing things so that others might be benefited and blessed. It's, it's a totally different mentality. Not what do I want, what's right for me, but what do you need? Paul loved others more than he loved himself and his own rights and prerogatives. And it made me think, when's the last time I was in a situation where I had to give up my rights for the blessing and edification of other Christians? How often do we do that? How often do we give up our rights? You know, we obviously don't have the meat sacrifice to idol kerfluffle uh, uh, going on today. That's not really something we're, we're faced with. But you know, there are other issues that are kind of moral gray areas for Christians where Christians disagree. Godwin talked about some of them last Sunday. Things like, should Christians drink alcohol at all? Should Christians go to R-rated movies? Should Christians go to PG-13 movies? Should Christians go to PG movies? What kind of music should Christians listen to? Should Christians let their kids go trick-or-treating on Halloween? You know, all, all of these, should Christians celebrate Christmas, you know, that Christmas tree that doesn't come from the Bible, that's kind of a pagan ceremony carried over. I mean, should we be doing Christmas trees? You know, all these kinds of issues where sometimes Christians disagree about these things. And have there been any situations where I've been in other Christians, maybe in a social setting, where I've had an opportunity to use some, a right, but I know that another Christian disagrees with that right, and it might trip them up. Or, or, or it might confuse them. I, I mean, a simple one is maybe you're a Christian who believes it's not right, it's not wrong to have a drink of alcohol. But you're with another Christian who struggles with that, maybe came out of an alcoholic background, and maybe, you know, has a, a, a tender conscience about that. And you're like, oh, come on. God made everything. Use it in moderation. What's your big deal? Stop being such a baby, you know? And that Christian has a drink, but then they're like, I don't know if I should have done that. And you've hurt their conscience. Well, what about foregoing your rights for the sake of other Christians who have a tender conscience about things? Let me ask you this. Have you ever foregone your right to free speech for the good of others? Have you ever bit your lip when you thought you wanted to just say something, cut loose? And what you wanted to say wasn't sinful, but you know, it might not have helped that other Christian in that particular situation. Have you ever like had the email written and then been like, do I send or do I not send? <laughs> what I'm saying here isn't wrong, but you know, is this email going to help that person based upon where they're at and where that person is at? Should I really comment on that Facebook post with what I really want to say? Should I keep it in my head or should I use my outdoor voice? Uh, which one should I use? 
Sometimes we have to curtail our right to free speech, not because we're trying to be deceptive or dishonest, but because you know that because of where the other person's at, it's not going to help them with what you want to say. Uh, have you ever been in youth group? Those of you uh, students here in youth group or maybe at Olympians on Sunday night, and, uh, and there you are. Finally, you're with your friends at youth group. You haven't seen them all week uh, besides texting and Snapchat and Facebook and Twitter. But you haven't seen them all week, and you're finally connected with each other, and there you are in a circle, and it's so good to be back together in youth group. And then you look over your shoulder, and you see the new kid who's the same age, and you think, ah, finally with my friends. Don't I have a right to be with my friends? Absolutely. But what about the spiritual good of that person? You know, and so it, it takes an effort. It takes a sacrificing of rights and preferences to kind of step away from the circle, to walk over to the other person and say, hi, you seem to be new here. Hey, can we introduce you to some people? And, and maybe you can't do all the same inside jokes and all that stuff when there's a new person in the circle, but but it's giving up our rights and our preferences for the spiritual good of others in that situation. Have you ever given up your right to freedom of assembly on Sunday mornings so that you could go serve in the nursery? You go serve others. You could use that time on Sunday morning where you need to be fed to go and maybe once a month or once every other month serve others in the church to make it able for them to be spiritually fed and nourished. What about little things like giving up your preferences in music have you ever walked in a church and found someone in your pew? You know? Ah. Seriously, what are you doing in my pew? Like, ah, this is where I sit. Have you ever gotten to church early? I guess that's kind of hypothetical. But, but, you know, hypothetically, were you to get to church early, you would find out that there's parking spaces right next to the building. And you think... I can park right next to the building. I have a right. I've earned it. I've gotten here early. But, but, but have you ever thought of parking at the back of the lot so that people who are maybe less able-bodied or people with little kids or guests can, you know, you know just little, that's like a little like kind of thing, but it's the mentality. What are my rights? Okay, fine. But what are the spiritual needs of others? And is it possible that in some circumstances yielding my rights might actually be used to strengthen and serve others. This is the mentality that Paul had. But what I want you to see is, and we'll just sort of wrap this up here in verses 19 to 23, is that Paul, Paul takes this to another level in verses 19 to 23. It's not just that specific instance of food sacrifice to idols. And it's not just the specific instance of did he take money or did he not take money. Paul wants us to see in verses 19 to 23 that this whole idea of giving up your rights this is his whole philosophy of ministry. This is his whole philosophy of how to do gospel ministry. Look at verse 19. This is such a remarkable verse. Verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no man, Paul answered to one man and one man only, Jesus Christ. I am free. I belong to no man. I make myself a slave to everyone. Why? To win as many as possible. This is Paul's philosophy of ministry. He preached the gospel, but he also embodied the gospel. And he was willing to give up rights, preferences, privileges, if it would help advance the gospel. What is Paul's philosophy of ministry? Two words, 
voluntary slavery. That's Paul's ministry philosophy. And every seminarian and every missionary and every pastor should probably memorize verse 19. This should be part of our philosophy of ministry, voluntary slavery. I enslave myself voluntarily to everyone to win as many as possible. Uh, Which is interesting because what's a slave? A slave is a person who says, uh, you are the boss of me. That's a slave's life. You're the boss of me. I'm not the boss of anyone. You're the boss of me. I'm a slave. And so Paul would intentionally put aside his preferences and his culture and his desires so that the gospel could be advanced. And he gives us some for instances. So look at verses 20 to 23. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, that is, again, Jewish people, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. Now to the Gentiles, verse 21. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I myself am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I've become weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I, by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. That's Paul's philosophy. I, I, I just become everything to every man um, so that they might be saved. Now, now, just to qualify that, when Paul says, I become all things to all people, He's not saying that he compromises the message of right and wrong to people. You know, so when Paul's preaching to Gentiles, he's not saying, it's okay, idolatry's okay, sexual immorality's okay. He's not compromising the message. But in terms of cultural issues that are, that are sort of not moral issues, things that are gray areas, he says, you know what, I'm willing to just jettison all that so that I can get rid of any stumbling block that would keep someone from coming to Christ. So when he's around the Jewish people, he's like a Jewish person. You know, Paul was raised as a Jew. Uh, He he doesn't believe Judaism is the way of salvation. He he doesn't believe eating kosher, uh, you know, being circumcised, keeping the Sabbath, observing Passover. He doesn't think that's the way to be saved, even though he was raised as a rabbi. Um, Paul is not a Messianic Jew in the sort of modern way of using that phrase. He's a Christian. He believes in Christ, and he proclaims Christ. But when he's around Jewish people, and he's trying to share with them the gospel, well, he's going to try to explain it in a way they'd understand. He's going to go to synagogue. He's going to preach in the synagogue. He's probably wearing his prayer shawl. You know, when they go out to lunch, he's not ordering pulled pork. I mean, it's like, don't do things that are going to cause Jewish people to be tripped up. You want them to be able to hear the gospel clearly. And so don't do things that are going to block the gospel that are secondary. Or when he's around the Gentiles, he's not going to sort of press them on things from his Jewish heritage that, that, that would be a stumbling block to the Gentiles. He wants the Gentiles to be saved, to know Christ. He wants to keep Christ front and center. When he's around the weak, he becomes weak and is sensitive to where they're at. And so this is his whole philosophy of ministry. How do I remove the barriers between that person and the gospel that include giving up rights and preferences about things I feel fine doing, but I'm not going to do them around that person because it would trip them up. Uh, This is a common challenge that every missionary has to face when a missionary goes to a different culture. Missionaries are all, it's a lifelong thing. They're always trying to figure out 
what things do I need to stand on because they're God's word and what things are just cultural American things that I can give up on that maybe I'd prefer to do it that way, but I'm in another culture now. So how, I, how do I uh, you know, contextualize the gospel? It's a challenging thing. Uh, there's a missionary that our church supports. His name is Bob Sabian. And uh, Bob was just here recently. And, uh, and, and he, he's from New England originally. He's a New Englander. But he's ministering in Costa Rica. And in Costa Rica, he does these Christian camps where students come in and, and they learn about the gospel and about Jesus through these camps. And, and so it's an interesting thing going from New England to Costa Rica, slightly different cultures. Uh, and he, he gets down to Costa Rica and, and he talks about his second conversion. His first conversion was when he became a follower of Jesus Christ. His second conversion is when he finally decided to do ministry in Costa Rica in a Costa Rican way and not a New England way. You know, he said, I'm a New Englander, and so I value efficiency, order, productivity. And he says, in Costa Rica, eh, you know, don't worry about it. Let's socialize. Let's have relationships. You know, in New England, if you want to show someone you love them, one of the ways you can show someone you love them in New England is don't waste their time. That's a kind, loving thing to do, right? Don't waste people's time. But in Costa Rica... He said, I found out the loving thing to do was to kind of waste time, to spend time with people, to socialize. Same thing I've heard with Western missionaries who go to Africa. There's a saying that in Africa that Americans have the watches, but Africans have the time. That's the kind of you know, warm culture, more relational orientation. And so Bob had to come to a point in his ministry where he just let go of the productivity, efficiency, blah, 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 and he could just hang out with people and, and he laid aside those things that were kind of a hindrance to him ministering the gospel. Because the important thing is the gospel and the, the message of Jesus Christ. And so do, do we have those opportunities around us? I, I think we have them all the time where we can say no to our preferences. You know, here's how you might experience it here. You're in a Bible study or a growth group, right? Some of you have been in Bible studies before, home Bible studies. You love your Bible study, it's great. But then there's that one Bible study where somebody invites a guest, and that guest just happens to be somebody who's not a Christian or they're new to the whole Christianity thing. And you know that the day that new person comes to the Bible study is the day that a couple of the people in the Bible study insist on having the all-out battle about Calvinism versus Arminianism. Or, or an all-out battle about the end times. You know, and, and is it pre-tribulation or post or this rapture or that? And, and you're like, like, you know, there's this new person here. They need the ABCs. They need someone to just tell them the basics. Not that those other conversations are wrong. I love theological battles. You know, I'm a card-carrying Calvinist. I love to argue about all that stuff. It's great. Love it. But, but there's a spiritual need. There's a person right there who just needs to be told the basics of the gospel. And so, you know, it's like, and, and you're looking around the group, and you just want to yell at the other Christians in the group, like, guys, stop it person here who needs Jesus. Like, we need to like, you know, retool and focus in on that person. And you say, wait a minute though, I've been in this Bible study 15 years. This is my family. They're new. I have a right to, to have theological arguments with other Christians that I trust. Yeah, 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 you have that right. But would you be willing to give it up for one week or two weeks or ten weeks? I mean, what are we here for anyway? You know, just to have our arguments or what, what about the opportunities God puts right in front of us. 
I had one of these uh, opportunities. Uh, I'll tell you one more story, then I'll close. But uh, uh, l- let me tell you a story of when I totally failed in this area. Huge fail. So I was, uh, <laughs> I was out mowing my lawn, and um, one of my neighbors was walking by, and I happened to be off the mower, so I went over and chatted. And we were chit-chatting a little bit, and this neighbor knew I was a pastor and all that. And, uh, and about three-quarters of the way through the conversation, it dawned on me that as I was talking to this person, I was wearing a very blatantly super obnoxious political t-shirt. Now, you guys know I don't do politics from the pulpit. I don't believe this is the place for politics, uh, except for the politics of the kingdom of God. Uh, Politics are great, they're important, but they're not as important as the gospel at all. And so in the time we have here, I wanna talk about the gospel, I wanna talk about politics. And besides, Christians can come at things from different angles on politics. It's one of those areas, those gray areas. But, uh, but needless to say, stepping out of the pulpit, I do have political convictions, probably just like you. You probably have political, strong political views on things, just like I do. And, and I, that, Sunday, that, uh, that day, I think it was probably a Saturday, mowing my lawn, I happened to be wearing a shirt that was really obnoxiously shouting out my political views. I know you're dying to ask, like, what was on the shirt? So. <laughs> Vote for Pedro, okay? It was... Uh, So, and so this person, you know, eventually the conversation ended, and I'm just sitting there thinking like, oh man, I hope that person doesn't have the opposite political viewpoint. Because here I am trying to be friendly, you know, and they know I'm a representative of the church or of Christianity, but what do they see? You know, and I'm like, I hope they're the same political viewpoint, but based on the few conversations I've had with them, I don't think they are. <laughs> And I just, I just said, oh, okay, especially as a pastor, I can't let politics block people from hearing the gospel. I can't do that. It's more important. Do I have a right to political speech? Absolutely. But I want to give up that right so that I can tell people about Jesus so that they might have eternal life and be saved. And so this is where Paul was. Paul had this philosophy I, do all, I become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. But you know, for Paul, it, it wasn't just a philosophy of, of ministry. It's really the gospel itself. Isn't the gospel the story about one person who could truly say, you're not the boss of me, the Lord Jesus Christ? the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and yet laid aside all of those rights, all of that glory, to become a slave, to die a slave's death on a cross, to die a criminal's death, in order to provide a great spiritual salvation for me, to rescue me from my sins. That's the gospel message, that the Creator loved us so much that He sent His one and only Son to die for us. And so the gospel affects everything now. It, it changes the way I look at everything because that's the story of Jesus. And so your attitudes, your attitudes, my attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who, being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant And being made in human likeness. And having been found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that the gospel would echo and rattle in our souls and tell, Lord, it's not just something we sing or believe or preach, but that the gospel is something that we are. Oh, God, I just pray, help us to have the deep love for others that that would cause us to be willing at times and in, in circumstances to set aside our rights, our preferences, our wishes, so that others might be blessed with the gospel and might grow in their faith. Oh, Lord, help us to love others more than we love ourselves and our own rights. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would not only be believers in the gospel, but we would be embodiers of the gospel. And so, Lord, help us to embrace voluntary slavery for others, to make ourselves nothing so that others might come to know you. Oh, God, give us an eternal perspective. We need help. We're so stuck thinking this world and and all of its rights are anything. Lord, save us from that. Help us to see that all that matters is to enter the kingdom of God. And so, God, we pray, use us, humble us, fix our eyes on Christ. In his name we pray, amen.